Andrew, to be praying for David and David this week. The two Davids are going to be painting out there in the crash. So if it's not ready for next Sunday, don't blame Andrew, don't blame me, blame those two, okay? I'm just deflecting right away. Not, no pressure, no pressure whatsoever. But you boys are in trouble if it's not open next week. Anyway, Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we have been kind of slowing up a little bit in our course through Matthew uh, as we come to this really important chapter of God's Word. Of course, all of God's Word is important, but this is a chapter in which there is much misunderstanding and uh, where people kind of skim over and don't really grasp the import of just what Jesus was teaching And uh, just two little verses of Scripture tonight, and then we're going to go to the back of our Bible, to the book of Revelation and chapter 17. But let's begin here in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31. And it says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Let's go to Revelation chapter 17, if you will, and read from verse 1 down to verse 6. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, or bowls, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And we trust God will add his blessing to the reading of his eternal and precious word. I wonder, have you ever, looking from the outside in, watched some of the pomp and the ceremony of state church occasions and asked yourself, how did the church go from a group of humble believers praying in an upper room in Jerusalem to this luxurious mega-religion that we see today with all of its great buildings and its traditions and its clergy, with popes and cardinals and bishops and archbishops, where, we might ask, did the church go wrong? I wonder if you've ever asked yourself that question. Have you ever looked at some of these things that are done in the name of Christ and thought, well, I don't recognize any of this from my readings of the New Testament. Surely this was never the church that God intended it to be. And so we would have to say that if such be the case, something somewhere went astray. And that something is actually explained in this third parable of Matthew chapter 13. Now, the popular uh, explanation of this uh, parable, the consensus of opinion, uh, is uh, not just for this parable, but along with the next one, that it illustrates the glorious success 
of the gospel. If you've maybe heard other preachers preaching this, they may well have taken you down that line. And they would have taught you that uh, the growth of the mustard seed is regarded as portraying the rapid growth and extension of Christ's kingdom, uh, the church. Now, of course, the folly in that is that the church isn't Christ's kingdom, and uh, and the kingdom is later to come uh, when the Lord Jesus comes. But the, the, uh, the, the breakdown of this parable under such a sermon would go like this. The sower is Jesus himself. Well, no problem there. We accept that. The mustard seed was the smallest seed known uh, in Israel at that time. And it represents the gospel, starting very, very small, but growing to reach millions throughout the world who will inherit the kingdom. And the field represents all the people on earth uh, who will receive Christ. The tree is rooted in Jesus Christ and has grown a a harvest far beyond its initial planting. It's the greatest among all the herbs. And the birds of the air are those who follow Jesus and the tree offers them refuge uh, for his faithful to rest in. Now that's the normal uh, explanation of this parable. But is that really what Jesus was teaching? What is this third parable telling us? What's it about? Well, I want to begin tonight by noticing, first of all, in verse 31, something small. He says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed. Now, in the Near Eastern culture of Jesus' time, the mustard seed was used as an idiom to represent the smallest possible measure of anything. The Jewish people themselves had a saying, as small as a grain of mustard seed. And Jesus himself used that very uh, term in Matthew 17, 20, when he said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you'd be able to remove mountains. And so the, the mustard seed spoken of here is a very common plant in Israel. It's one that uh, is very popular among the Jewish people. It is a, a herb, and indeed, its beginnings are very small. And But ultimately, it grows into a plant that's about 12 or 15 feet high, perhaps, and it has this very stocky stem. It's almost like the trunk of a tree, and indeed, it's possible for birds to rest in its branches, if you want to call them that. Now, there's no question that Christianity began its history as a mustard seed, something very small, something very insignificant. It began with one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, described by Isaiah the prophet as a tender plant, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And then Jesus drew to himself 12 disciples who became the 12 apostles, which in turn uh, turned to 70 and then to 120, and then 3,000 before multitudes were added to the church. And you can follow that course throughout the the scriptures. Luke talks about the 70, Acts 1.15 talks about the 120 uh, meeting in the upper room for prayer before Pentecost. Acts 2.41 talks about the 3,000 who were saved on the day of Pentecost. Acts 4 and 4 uh, talks about multitudes being saved. And so this was the normal growth of the early church. Now we might think of it as exponential growth, that somehow or other this church is just rocketing in membership. And, uh, and that's how it might seem as you look at it. Uh, but it really, when you look at it in the grand scheme of things, in the millions of people that lived in the Roman Empire, it really wasn't very much at all. In fact, in Luke 12, 32, Jesus refers to his church as a little flock. And Paul, in Romans chapter 11 and verse 5, calls it a remnant. And the enemies of the cross in Acts 24 refer to the church as the sect of the Nazarenes, a kind of despicable term. It's almost like a put-down. Well, they're just a little sect. They're not very significant. They're not very important. They're not very impressive. And although we might say the church was certainly growing and growing well at the beginning, it was not such a mighty movement that it resembled anything other than a shrub. So to begin with, the church planted in God's field was something small, as small as a grain of mustard seed. 
And in keeping with the status of the mustard plant, it was something very lowly. But the next thing you see in this parable is something strange. Look in verse 31 again. It says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and I want you to notice this, and becometh a tree. Now let's stop there. It becometh a tree. The herb became a tree. Now it's unnatural for a herb to become a tree. You know, they're both plants, but they're very different kinds of plants. And yet that's what Jesus says took place. He says when this thing is grown, he says it's the greatest among the herbs and it becomes a tree. Luke is even more emphatic than that. Let's look at the Gospel of Luke for a moment in chapter 13. Matthew, or sorry, Luke chapter 13 and verse 19. We'll read verses 18 and 19 together, actually. It's the same parable as stated by Luke. It says, Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. Now notice what Luke says. He doesn't just say it became a tree. He says it became a great tree. Now, when I think of a great tree, I'm thinking of something like an oak. I'm thinking of something like a Canadian redwood tree, you know, that that would have a trunk that would probably fill this hall when it gets to its fullest maturity. You know, this huge tree, this mammoth uh, plant. You know, one of the greatest uh, oak trees you can see in England is in Sherwood forest where uh, Robin Hood was supposed to have uh, applied his trade and uh, they've got this old oak tree there I think they say it's a thousand years old or something like that and the branches are propped up with uh, with poles and to, to stop them from snapping off so as to preserve the tree it's a mighty tree and that's what Luke uh, that's how Luke perceives this tree. He says this herb became a mighty tree. It became a, a great, huge uh, plant, uh, not at all like how it began. So I want you to hold that thought for a moment, and uh, I want you to see uh, how this parable develops and look at what we're really seeing here. Now notice as we continue back in Matthew chapter 32, another thing happens. It says not only has the herb become a tree, but something sinister takes place. It says so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, There are those who will tell you, and I've just mentioned at the outset of our sermon, that the birds of the air here are representative of believers. That this is Christians sheltering in the branches of Christ. This is Christians who are, who are being born again and who are being added to the church as the, as the church expands. But we have a real problem with that interpretation. We have very real difficulty with it. What is the difficulty? The difficulty is that in Matthew 13, in verse 4, and in verse 19, Jesus explains to us what the fowls, what the birds actually represent. If you go back to verse 4, he talks about the sower and the seed. And he says, when he sowed some seeds, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Well, are we thinking here that this is believers or these Christians that came and devoured them up? Well, not at all, because the interpretation is given in verse 19. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one. And catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. So far from representing those who are faithful and true, this is representing the wicked one. This is a picture of something demonic. This is a picture of something satanic. You see, I want you to get this. In this chapter, the fowls, the birds, represent a great wickedness. And this is entirely consistent with our understanding of Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul speaks, 
speaks about Satan as being the prince and power of the air. He portrays him as filling the atmosphere around us. You go to Genesis 15 and verse 11 and what do you find? There you have the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. You remember the story well, how that Abraham was told to take a variety of animals and he cut them in, ha- cut them in half and he put the body parts at each side, one against the other, and then uh, the Lord caused them to have a deep sleep and to walk, and the Lord walked through the midst of those, uh, those carcasses And in so doing, he signifies his unilateral covenant with Abraham. But before all of that happens, Abraham has a vision. And in this vision, he sees the the birds coming down and trying to peck away at these carcasses. And he's beating the air, trying to keep the birds off this meat that is lying before him. You see, the, the presence of the birds in that instance is seen as something not good, but something bad, something unwelcome, something undesirable. There's something unclean. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, you find there the uh, the Sinaitic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is detailed. And in that covenant, Israel is offered blessings if they obey God and cursings if they disobey God. And in respect to the cursings, uh, we're told that for their disobedience, thy carcass shall be meat unto all the fowls of the air. Again, that's not a positive statement. It's a negative statement. It's not a statement of blessing. It's a statement of cursing. It's not something good, it's something bad. And then when you get into Revelation 18 and verse 2, where we're told that Babylon becomes the habitation of demons and of and the hold, now listen, of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Nowhere in all the word of God is a Christian spoken of as a bird or a bird spoken of as a Christian. Christians are referred to as sheep and as lambs, but never as fowl. You see, consistently, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, a mention of birds in that sense is a picture of something wicked, of something sinful. The only other place where I can think of where people are referred to as birds is in the case of the Babylonian army and the Assyrian army, again the Old Testament. And both times those armies are seen to be the enemy of God and of his word and of his will and of his people. So how then can this great tree that emerges from the little mustard seed represent the true church of Christ with its branches affording uh, those who trust him refuge? No, friends, that's not it at all. Its branches are really affording refuge to devils, to something demonic, fowls, birds. Now, I want you to come with me to Daniel chapter 4 this evening because we want to not only get that picture of the birds, but we want to understand what the tree portrays. And again, we are going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We're not going to do any guesswork here. We're not going to rely on our own instincts. We're not going to try and put a a shine on things and make this parable much more positive than it actually is. But I want you to see what a tree represents prophetically in Scripture. And in Daniel chapter 4 and uh, verse 10, uh, we, ha- we have these words. Thus were the visions of my head and my bed, and I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. This is King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, describing his dream uh, to Daniel. The tree grew and was strong. Does that sound familiar? And the height thereof reached onto the heavens. In other words, it was a mega tree. It was an exceptionally large tree. And the sight thereof to the end of all the earth, the leaves thereof were fair and the fruit thereof much. And in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it. And notice, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all the flesh was fed of it. Let's carry on. It says, And I saw in the vision of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, 
and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under him and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times uh, pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will over at the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belshazzar, and that's Daniel's Babylonian name, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make note unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. And the king spake and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had habitation. It is thou, O king, thou art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven and thy dominion to the end of the earth. You see, what I want you to get here is this. In this particular prophecy, which parallels perfectly with what we've read in Matthew chapter 13, the tree portrays a kingdom. It portrays the kingdom of Babylon. The same picture is painted of this mighty tree that emerges and stretches its branches out over all the earth and the fowls of the air rest in its boughs. It's exactly the same image that the Lord Jesus is painting in Matthew 13 as he shares this parable. Look with me now in Ezekiel chapter 3 for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3 in verse 3 of this chapter. Sorry, not chapter 3. It's chapter 31 in verse 3. My mistake. Ezekiel 31 and verse 3. Here we come not to the Babylonian kingdom, but to the Assyrian empire. And it says, Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches. Now, if you know anything about cedar trees, the cedar trees of Lebanon, they're large trees. They're mega trees. And it says, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches and with a shadowing shroud and of a high stature and his top was among the thick boughs. The waters made him great. The deep set him up on high with her rivers running round about his plants and sent out her little rivers unto all the trees of the field. Therefore his height was exalted above all the trees of the field and his boughs were multiplied and his branches became long because of the multitude of waters when he shot forth. And all the fowls of heaven made their nests in his boughs. And under his branches did all the beasts of the field bring forth their young, and under his shadow shall all shall dwell all great nations. You see the picture? You see the imagery? You see exactly how it parallels? The Lord is speaking here of this mustard seed, which is the greatest of all herbs. But the herb becomes a great tree. And in the branches of that tree, the fowl come down and rest. And he's reflecting back to two great kingdoms, the Assyrian kingdom, of which we've just read in Ezekiel's prophecy, in which the Assyrian empire is portrayed as a tree in which the fowl take rest, and also the Babylonian empire, which came out of the Assyrian, or which conquered the Assyrian. It comes next in the scheme of kingdoms and empires. And again, you have the same image. You have this mighty tree and these fowl that are sitting 
in its branches. Jesus was employing a familiar Old Testament figure for a mighty kingdom which gave shelter to the nations. And in Matthew chapter 13, the tree symbolizes earthly greatness and worldly prominence giving shelter to the pagan nations of this world. Now, is that, is that what is to become of the church in the world? Well, I think it is. Following, and we're just going to give you a little history now, following his dubious conversion in 313 AD, the Roman emperor Constantine issued what was called the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan changed things dramatically, politically, practically, for anybody who professed to be a Christian, because for the first time in the Roman Empire, Christians had sanction from on high. Whereas before they were being heavily persecuted by the empire, and now the offer went out for them to have religious freedom and to worship as they pleased. And of course, those who prior to this edict had been engaged and observing the persecution of the church, when they saw now that the church was the favored religion of the emperor, thought that they had best get into the church. And so at that point in church history, the church becomes swamped by people who have had no regeneration, who've had no true new birth, but who have simply come along and professed Christ without possessing Christ and entered into the church in order to save their own skins from potential persecution by the Roman emperors. By 380 AD, the emperor Theodosius made Christianity the official state religion. And with this marriage of church and state, the church became part of a very powerful political religious system. The church, friends, became something it was never meant to be. The herb became a tree. And its roots sunk deeper into the earth. Now caves and caverns, once places of worship to fledgling churches, gave way to costly cathedrals and, and ornate churches. Simple faith gave way to pomp and to ceremony with its gold-threaded vestments, its imposing ceremonies, its pompous Roman priesthood, luring in the unbelieving and the unregenerate, and multitudes and multitudes applied for baptism. More and more, the leaders sought after temporal power, were less and less interested in spiritual truth. They realized that they were doing well materially and that they were doing well in terms of their political clout, and they rather liked it. And so more and more, their longings were gratified by the state, and more and more, the church encroached on the state, and the state encroached upon the church. The herb became a tree. Get that. The herb became a tree. Worldly men now sought after and secured the highest offices in the church. And if you don't believe me, go back and read the history of the church. Read about the history of the popes. See the kind of sins that these men were engaged in and doing so in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of New Testament Christianity. Hence we find the birds, the agents of Satan, are seen lodging in the branches of the tree, secured in positions of power, high up in the church, and directing the activities of the new state religion. I want you to come with me to 2 Corinthians for a moment in chapter 11. 2 Corinthians and chapter 11. Because Paul is very clear that not everything that calls itself Christian is Christian. And not every minister of Christ is truly a minister of Christ. Not everyone who professes to be a minister of Christ is truly a minister of Christ. And he makes it clear that there are those who are duplicitous and counterfeit. And in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he speaks of such that are false apostles 
deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, he says, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. You see, here's the thing. God has his ministers, and the devil has his ministers. God has his church, and the devil has his church. Christ has his kingdom coming, but there's another kingdom that is is counterfeiting that, and does so in the name of the church. So people look around today, and maybe you're one of them, and you scratch your head when you see such anomalies as gay clergy and pedophile priests and greedy TV evangelists and proud pastors. And you say, well, what happened? Where did it all go wrong? Well, here's what happened. The herb became a tree. The herb became a tree. Something small and apparently insignificant, turned into something monstrous and grotesque. Something that was a caricature of the truth. Something it was never meant to be. You see, friends, in the first parable, the devil caught away part of the good seed. In the second parable, which we looked at last week, the parable of the wheat and the tares, he engaged in the work of imitation. And in this parable, we find a corrupted Christianity giving him shelter. So we see something small. And then we saw something strange. And then we read of something sinister. Now we see something similar. Look in Revelation chapter 17 again with me. And we'll tidy all of this up. Revelation chapter 17. And verse 1. Revelation 17 and verse 1. Let's read it again just for the sake of context and understanding where we're coming from. It says, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great horror that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And he carried me away in the spirit, the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Friend, what I'm telling you is this tonight. The Lord has his people, as we saw last week, and the devil has his. So too the Lord has his church, and the devil has his. Now we're very limited with time tonight to really go into this passage in great detail, but I want to skim through it with you, and I want you to notice some of the characteristics, and I want you to see that what we're looking at in Revelation 17 is an aberrant religious entity, a religious organization, a religious body, whatever you want to call it, And this is Satan's church at the end of time. This is the herb that is now developed into a tree, into a mighty mega tree, a tree under which the branches of the nations sit, the kings of this earth sit, a tree in which the branches rests, various filthy birds of every kind. And when you're looking at this religious property, uh, this religious body, look in verse 1 and notice her portrayal. She's portrayed as a great whore. Now, probably that's the worst name I should think that any woman could possibly be called. Uh, To be called a whore is highly insulting. And in Scripture, spiritual apostasy is often referred to as 
whoredom or harlots, right? And, uh, you know, that has been the, the case from Old Testament times to New Testament times, that when a church or when a body of people depart from the faith, very often God refers to them as going into whoredom or going into harlots, right? Not only is she a harlot, but if you look further down the text in verse 5, she's the mother of harlots. She produces other harlots. She produces after her kind the same sort of churches and the same sort of religions, just as wicked as is she. Notice her presence in verse 1. She's the great whore that sitteth on many waters. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, verse 15 tells us explicitly what it means. The waters there represent peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. She sits upon many waters. Her branches cover many nations. They, they cover people and multitude and nations and tongues. What are we seeing here? Remember, the herb became a tree. The herb became a tree. And notice her politics, with whom, in verse 2, the kings of the earth hath committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornications. So here's a religious body, and rulers and nations are under her influence. They are in her pocket. She sits upon a scarlet-colored beast there. Who is this beast? Well, Time forbids us to really examine it, but Revelation 13 makes it clear this is the, the kingdom of Antichrist. In other words, she's in league with the rule of Antichrist at the end of time, and she uses political means to her own end. And notice her profanity in verse 3. It says that she was full of names of blasphemy. This is not a true church. This is not the church that Jesus started. This is not the kind of church that Paul planted. This is not the church to whom the epistles and the New Testament are written. This is a different character altogether. This is a church who has names full of, uh, full of the names of blasphemy. And notice her prosperity in verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and, and scarlet color. Very significant colors. And decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Extraordinarily rich. She has a golden cup in her hand. Full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And then notice in verse 6 her persecutions. He says, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And then notice uh, her, her position. Look at verse 3. It says, so he carried me away in the, in the uh, uh, spirit into the wilderness. I saw this woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. What does that mean? We'll look at the end of verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now I'm going to ask you a simple question tonight. Which religious body, now present upon the earth, fulfills best of all this picture? What do you see as you think about this great whore that sits upon the waters? What do you think of when you see the, the, kind, of, uh, the kind of language that is used uh, of her friends? What you're looking at in this particular passage is a religious system that is Roman in character. This is Romanism. This is Catholicism. You see, when we speak about Roman Catholicism, the word Catholic simply means universal. Here's a church that has a reach that covers the entire globe. Here's a church that sits upon many waters. She's the only religion on earth, by the way, who could possibly uh, fulfill that characteristic of being decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Her colors, purple and scarlet, the colors of the cardinals and the holy sea of Rome. That's exactly the colors of the robes they wear. And as far as the, as far as the, the precious stones, stones and the gold and the pearls and all of that. Well, listen, that's Romanism. That's Romanism. She's the only religion on earth that, that has this kind of clout, that the only kind of religion on earth that has the kings of the earth bowing before her, quite literally. 
Rome is the only religion on earth that has formed its own state with its own head of state that has its own ambassadors who can walk into the heart of Whitehall in London and speak face to face with British officials. I can't do that. Other ministers can't do that. I don't have that kind of clout. You know, if I have a problem, I have to phone my MP the same as you phone your MP. And I have to rely on his or her political skills to help me out. But not so with this church. This church has its own ambassador. And he can go and speak on her behalf. And they can come to the state and visit her. She's the only church that bears such titles of blasphemy, full of names of blasphemy, you know, putting Christ to open shame every day by means of the daily offering of the Mass. You know, instead of accepting his one true sacrifices being once for all, the blasphemy of the Pope, the papal office, bearing names of God, Holy Father. That's the name of God. That's the name the Lord Jesus used in his high priestly prayer. Holy Father, to go and speak to a man and address him by those terms is nothing less than blasphemy. Vicar of Christ. Vicar means instead of. We talk about the vicarious death of Christ, where Christ died in our place instead of us. Vicar of Christ means instead of Christ, in Christ's place. You go and see the Pope and he is the Holy Father. He tells you I am here instead of Christ. I am Christ on earth. He calls himself the Supreme Pontiff, which means quite literally great high priest. It's a term that is extracted from the ancient Roman Empire as the church became more and more political and absorbed into the state system. It began to adopt many of the state's titles and one of them was Supreme Pontiff. Now we have a man who's sitting in the Vatican in Rome, sits upon a throne. When you go into his presence, you do so. If he grants you an audience, he's acting as a king. You come into his presence, Ladies have to be dressed in black. They have to have their heads filled. They, they have to bow and kiss his ring before they can speak to him. And they address him as Holy Father, Vicar of Christ, the great high priest, full of names of blasphemy. Well, you know, there's many a church up and down this land won't preach this anymore. A bunch of spineless pastors to be ministers of the gospel and they'll never open to this chapter and teach these things for fear of man may God have mercy on them hirelings and not only does, he, does this church and this papal figure and this office bear these names of blasphemy there are many many pagan practices within her such as the use of holy water Signing of the cross, priestly celibacy, and so on. And the Bible says that she's decked with gold and precious stones. She has in her hand a golden cup. And anytime you see the Pope celebrate Mass, have a look at the cup. And go home and Google it. We're living in that generation, aren't we? The age of information technology. You can go home and look it up. See the, the Pope standing there at the altar in the Vatican and what's in his hand? A great big golden goblet. And as for the stones and the gold and the silver and the precious things, well, no one knows the true wealth of the Roman church. Some people have estimated it at $1.8 trillion in cash reserves. The property portfolio of the Roman Catholic Church is something like $5 billion. It's about $700, million, $700 billion worth of art, not to mention all the stuff that's in the Vatican Library. Now, this is a wealthy church. And, of course, her history is stained with the blood of the martyrs. Cardinal Hoseas said of church history, that if they had not persecuted 
the believers, had they not persecuted the Baptists, was specifically what he's referring to, the Anabaptists, he said that the Baptists would outnumber the Catholics today. And he said that around the 1500s. He said these 1200 years, if it hadn't been these 1200 years for the persecution of the Anabaptists today, they would outnumber us. Remarkable statement. And our history is one that is soaked in the blood of the saints. And we know that from our own history. We know that from the history of the United Kingdom and of these islands. We know that in times past, those who broke away from Rome, those who held to Reformation truth, were very often tied to a stake and burned alive or cut asunder. You see, her history has been one of the martyrdom of millions of true believers. Now, I say all of that, and I want you you to understand this tonight, is not because I hate my Catholic neighbor. And before the Lord, the Lord is my witness, I have not an ounce of hatred toward our Roman Catholic neighbors. In fact, I love them with the love of the Lord Jesus. My desire toward them is good and not evil. I wish them well, and I want to see them saved. I want to see them rescued from this false system. It's not my neighbor that I hate. It's the horrible system that portrays itself as New Testament Christianity, when in fact it's a herb that became a tree. And it was being prophesied in Scripture all along. The Bible has been, has been leading us up to this moment of chapter 17 of Revelation. You see, all the way back in Ezekiel and in, and in Daniel, God began to paint the picture of a kingdom, of this rising tree, of its stretching branches, of the fowls of the air, the demonic influences resting in its boughs. He's been painting this picture. The Lord Jesus comes along. He's now been rejected. The kingdom's being rejected, and the disciples say, Well, what's going to happen now? He says to them, I'm telling you what's going to happen. There's going to be a seed planted, a mustard seed. It's not going to look like much at the beginning, and it will grow to a certain extent, but then it becomes a tree, and the fowls of the earth, every filthy bird will come down and rest in her. And we go right through the scriptures till we come to Revelation 17, and John lays it out for you, and he says, What you've been learning all along is that there is a time coming when religious Babylon shall dominate the earth. No, I I don't I don't hate the dear Catholic people around us far from it. I love them. And I say to them, as Paul said to the Galatians, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. And I say to them, even as John said in this very book, the book of Revelation 18 and 4, come out of her, my people, that you be not partaker of her sins and you receive not of her plagues. You see, God is going to judge this system. And it's not just Catholicism. Because notice, the mystery Babylon births other harlots. There are other churches that arise out of her, that suck from her sap, that develop from her, that have many of the identifying marks of her. And whilst I'm very thankful for the Reformation in terms of its grasp of justification by faith, if you look at the history of Protestantism, friends, as time has transpired, the Protestant churches today, by and large, are just as wicked, just as Roman, just as apostate, just as rotten, just as corrupt, just as demonically filled as anything Roman Catholicism has to offer. And so you say, well, what's left? God's little flock. Just a little flock. Just a few sheep. Just the remnant of his people. 
Here is a warning tonight from the lips of Jesus concerning religion. He's telling us not to put our hope in churchianity. Not to be confident because we belong to this church or that church, because our church is the biggest and the most powerful or the most mighty or the most impressive or has the greatest buildings or the most money or the greatest number of clergy or the greatest reach or any of those things. He's saying, don't put your trust in the religion of this age. Don't trust in churches, whatever their ilk, and that includes Baptist churches. Don't trust in men. Don't trust in priests and popes and pastors and and vicars and all of those lovely titles we give men. But trust only in the living God. That's what the Bible calls us to do. To trust only in the living God and to place your trust in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, as your own and personal saviour. You see, only Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a, listen to the words, peculiar people, a particular kind of people, zealous of good works. You know, people say sometimes, well, are you saved? They say, well, I belong to the church. I belong to the church. I'm a member of this church or that church. I was christened into this church or baptized into that church. Why, my father was in that church before me and his father before him. I belong to the church. Listen to me. When you stand before the the Lord and judgment day, I belong to the church isn't going to cut the mustard. What we need to say is, I belong to Jesus. And Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. What you need to say is, he is my Savior, and I belong to him. I wonder tonight, is this message meant for you? Has God spoke to your heart tonight? Maybe you're watching online. Maybe God has spoke to your heart this evening. But listen to me. Come out of her, my people. No more I belong to church. I belong to Jesus. He's the one who died for me. And he's the only one that matters. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.